interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. Uh, some people are afraid of the integration of or the joining of church and state because they're afraid that the state will use the church to do its, its bidding, such as marshalling the citizens and others um, for the benefit of the state. Is that a question? Um, my answer to that is we're doing that already. We're doing that already. I mean it in this sense. Um, the church instructs us in the ways of the moral life. Love for the neighbor, concern for the neighbor. Love for family. The welfare of children. Education. Honor for one another. And so forth and so on. In other words, the model citizen. And then what the state wants, of course, is the fruits of this work of the churches. The church wants model citizens. The church wants citizens that are productive. The the, the state wants people who are law-abiding, who are honest, who are enterprising, and so forth and so on, who pay their taxes. Talking about taxes, Monday looms. Um, The state wants that. What the state doesn't want, and in a very lopsided way, is, well, the state is not interested in the roots, in nurturing the roots of that heritage. So the state wants to live off the moral capital of a Christian heritage, but couldn't care less about nurturing the roots of that heritage. But in a civil society context, it's absolutely fundamental to the health and well-being of the Republic that the roots of the heritage are nurtured and strengthened. It's absolutely fundamental. Otherwise, and that's why I believe that Christian life and witness and religious life and witness in general is not just a private thing (laughs) that you just do for yourself. There's a lot that rides on that, that you do not see immediately uh, beyond uh, your own lifetime. Uh, So I would say we're doing it already, (laughs) to answer your question. Yes, Islam, uh, the question, you've had a question that the challenge, um, is that the West, it took the West a long time, um, to accept pluralism, um, come into pluralism, uh, and maybe the Muslim world, uh, is having the same struggle, and that in time it will also, uh, arrive at this, uh, culture of pluralism. 
my answer to that is that pluralism itself is a religious value. Pluralism itself is a religious value. If you look at the Gospels, uh, the Gospels of Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, they are really different <coughs> portraits of the life of Jesus. Jesus, his own name, combines a Jewish name with a Greek name. Immediately. Yeah. Yeshua Christus. Um, for the early Christian disciples, for the Jewish converts to Christianity, Jesus was the Messiah, the Messiah. For the Greek converts, Jesus was the Christ, <laughs> Christus, or the Lord, Kyrios, which was the Greek name for the cult divinities of the empire. So Christianity had enshrined into its very, very heart this pluralist view of the world. Even more radical, more fundamental, is the fact that Christianity is perhaps the only world religion that is propagated without the language of the founder of the religion. You think about that for a minute. The Gospels are a translated version of the preaching of Jesus. We don't have his original word. So that you already have then built into Christianity this cultural pluralism and this linguistic pluralism as well. And in Christian pluralism, how did Paul put it in Romans? Do not for the sake of culture destroy the work of God. But culture is, is available to us to use to express our faith to God, but culture itself is not faith. And that immediately brings culture down from its dogmatic, idolatrous status to something that human beings, you and I, can use. And Paul says, all these things are yours, and you are Christ. You know, he says that again and again. And, and for me, you see, as an African Christian, all these things, I say, yeah, uh, I just came from China, and I visited a tremendous Buddhist temple, the oldest in Shanghai. And I saw all those people making their devotions. And I, I said, yeah, Christian Chinese, and we went to the Catholic <coughs> church <coughs> later in the afternoon, and they were using Chinese things to express their faith to God. So that <coughs> through the one Chinese culture, if you like. You have varieties of religious faith and practice being promoted. So I want to say pluralism is as ancient as Christianity itself. And about Islam, Islam has, at least in Africa and elsewhere <clears throat> in the non-Arab world, Islam has promoted pluralism. I'm just writing a, an article on translation in Islam for the Encyclopedia of Islam. Um, and it's quite astonishing, from the translation of the Greek classics uh, into Syriac, later into Arabic, to the uh, <clears throat> tremendous movements in Turkey with secularization, and also in Pakistan uh, with Urdu, and Indonesia with its fantastic kaleidoscopic uh, array of cultures. Islam has been immersed and involved in this tremendous cultural pluralism.
So what is the problem? The problem, as I see it, is an enlightenment problem. It's a zero-sum game approach to culture and to economic. Um, in Arab, modernist Arab thought, this comes out for me very, very clearly. Namely, modernist Arab thought feels that secularization and democracy belong together, and they are rational and progressive. Religion, on the other hand, Islam in their case, belongs with the irrational, with the medieval and the obscurantist. This bifurcation, this sort of cleavage, is an enlightenment cleavage. It is unreal. Life is not like that. And it seems to me that this has uh, produced tremendous tension in the Muslim world. And until the Muslim world can deal with this enlightenment problem, um, which is why the state becomes the universal, absolute instrument, um, the in interest of the state, the survival of the state, the secular state, national state, the idea of citizenship, the unity of Islam broken up and fragmented into secular states uh, with rival jurisdictions so that Muslims are not allowed to call themselves fellow Muslims except as Syrians, as Jordanians, as Egyptians, as Tunisians, as Moroccans. Muslims say this is not reality. God, there's not going to be a place in heaven for Tunisians, for Egyptians, for for Moroccans, for, for, for Pakistanis, for Indonesians. God does not divide heaven into national jurisdictions. Surely you have to say Muslims are right. It seems to me these are the issues, and I think it will take time to sort them out. And that's one of the reasons I say that the, the intellectual argument really favors the conservatives in the Muslim world. Uh, they are doing all the running. I mean, they have all the intellectual ammunition available to them. I'm only sorry you can tell that on the Christian side I sympathize with this view. I'm only sorry that they are not articulating this better uh, and really making a stronger case as they can make uh, against the imperious claims uh, of the secular state, of the Western secular state. Yeah, in the way that you've defined, what do I mean by pluralism? Because pluralism, the question is, has been used uh, in American society uh, to relativize everything, to say that uh, there is no absolute, that everything is the same, and, uh, and so forth. That, that's the question. Um, and my response to that is to say that itself is a commentary on the Enlightenment Code. That's exactly what I was trying to say. Uh, because if you say, uh, I realize I'm speaking at Syracuse University, and I'll be going to Cornell next time, uh, and I know the power of anthropology uh, in the Western secular university. If you say that everything is the same, all things are equal, how do you know that? I mean, how do you know that all things are equal? On what base, by what standard are all things equal? <laughs> You only know that on the basis of some standard of uniformity, but that standard of uniformity will then include as much as it will exclude. And so what you say is correct, that in that pluralism, Christianity or religion is ex excluded. But then that pluralism is promoted as open-minded and tolerant. 
but it is intolerant of religion. So how is it self-consistent? Well, I'm not sure Islamic modernism is that. Uh, Arab modernism may be in trouble, uh, but Islamic modernism is alive and well. I'm thinking of the multi-volume commentary on the Quran by the African Muslim scholar Mamadou Ja, uh, who was trained, um, actually a trained economist uh, at the Sorbonne in France, in, in Paris, um, and a political leader, was Prime Minister of Senegal uh, for a while in the 60s, and during time, served time in jail for his political troubles, um, and he wrote this two-volume commentary on the Quran. Uh, in which, as a, as a Western-trained economist, um, he was trying to, to look at the doctrines of the Quran and their application to modern society. And he has a very wide following um, elsewhere. Um, I mentioned Mahmoud Taha uh, in the Sudan. His disciples uh, spread across the world. Uh, one of them had a book pu- published, actually, by Syracuse University Press, um, Abdullahi and naim who is uh, a lawyer uh, at Emory University School of Law. Uh, there's Muhammad Khalil, uh, who used to be the Attorney General of the Sudan, uh, now lives in Maryland, in near Washington, D.C. Um, and there's, there are several others. Uh, and in South Africa, there are South African, you know, modernist Muslims, you might call them moderates, uh, who are trying to, to find a way forward, uh, to, especially from this anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa. Um, and the role religion played, uh, both in supporting apartheid, but also in uh, attacking it and bringing it down. Um, so there are, there are several sources, I think, available uh, to us uh, to do this. Modernity, we found out on the 9-11 last year that secular, the doctrine or the dogma of secular invincibility, the power of America, um, very, very vulnerable. Bin Laden, in his videotapes, was hard boasting you see, America is very weak. And surely you don't have to agree with Bin Laden's project and his program to accept that. We are very weak. We are very vulnerable. We are liable to ideological takeover by groups within our country. We are a divided, fragmented, diffident, uncertain nation. Believe me, we are. We are very uncertain. G.K. Chesterton used to say, my, my, one of my favorite writers, and I'm glad here yeah, we are meeting under his umbrage. Ah, what a big umbrage, too. G.K. Uh, <laughs> Chesterton used to say that people are miserable, not when their circumstances are miserable, but when their hearts are miserable. Let's remember that. And, and the problem we face in America, and I've been listening a great deal to the responses to the 9-11, is this tremendous intellectual uncertainty in America about our core values, what makes us a society. 
we are so uncertain, we are so afraid um, to say anything because we don't want to offend anybody. But we don't realize that that itself is a very intolerant form of regime. To be afraid to say what you believe because you are afraid of offending others is in a sense to say that nobody must be allowed to be themselves. That's why we are suspicious. We lay down lines of analysis and interpretation that are profoundly unaccepting of ourselves and of others. Uh, It is a moral, it is a theological crisis as well. Um, But anyway, that's that's another another issue. But it's a big one. We we need this debate, we need this conversation with Muslims. Because Islam is the only religion that really, Judaism to some extent, but Judaism is a little different because of the race biological issue. But Islam is the only world religion And believe me, they are interested in this in China. I just came from there two days ago. Islam is the only major world religion that has anything to say about the nexus, the connection between religion and politics. We have a lot to say, and we've said a lot that is enlightening and useful. We need partners uh, to, to retrieve this tradition in the Christian West. Yes and no, in the same way that many Christians would say the West is very suspicious uh, of letting Christianity in. In fact, in our public universities, I think you will find, state universities, I mean, um, departments of religious studies much more willing to teach Islam than to teach Christianity. So it's a very, it's a paradoxical situation. Um, But... uh, I, I am interested also not just in the advantages, the benefits religions, religious people can get from this conversation. My main concern is really the health of, uh, of the larger society. That the democratic enterprise itself depends on our capacity to entertain each other, to accept each other. And that itself is, is the fruit, if you like, of the teachings of the gospel. Uh, that's really what, I, what I'm interested in. I, I want us to get to the position where we can say, as the Founding Fathers said, what are we willing to give up in order to make the larger enterprise possible? Now, the culture is against it today. Today, we are more interested in what, we can, what our rights are, what we can claim for ourselves. So give me my rights. I'm going to stand for my rights. I'm going to defend my rights. But the republic cannot survive long if every competing group within it is only going to take and take and take and nobody's going to give and give and give. And so that's what I'm concerned about. Oh, could I say a little bit about what the Sharia is? The Sharia is the legal system in Islam that is based on what the legal scholars call the roots of jurisprudence, Sul al-Fiqh. And they are the Quran, the scripture, the hadith, the traditions about the Prophet, 
the consensus of the community, so a community basis to it, and what today we would call case law, precedent, analogy, KR. So these four sources, branches, form the corpus of materials from which the lawyers derive Islamic law. The Quran is superior, and the Hadith illuminates the Quran. The consensus of the community ensures that the interpretation of the creed of the dogma follows a certain pattern so that it's not in conflict. And case law is the way to remind Muslims that the way people struggled with the faith in the past has lessons for them today. So it's a very, it's a very neat system. And how did it come about that this system was produced and created? This happened in the ninth century with an Egyptian jurist called Ashafi, who wrote uh, an intellectual argument that really was brilliant in its simplicity. <laughs> Um, the intellectual argument is this, that the foundation of Muslim community identity is the work of the Prophet Muhammad. That's the foundation. Because Muslims don't, would not have had the Quran if Muhammad had not delivered it. And therefore, if Muslims want to know what the Qur'an says, what it means, the meaning and the intention of the lawgiver in the Qur'an, they have no one better to go to than the Prophet Muhammad. The brilliant, brilliant, uh, it's very technical the way he developed it in his Risala, uh, very technical, but the, the simplicity of it was so cogent that it has lasted all these years since the 9th century. So that for Muslims in China, I just came from China, um, <laughs> there was a paper contributed by a Chinese scholar to the conference called, the paper was entitled, The Importance of the Five Pillars of Islam for Society in China. It's interesting. Um, but that, that just shows you the durability of this heritage. I don't know whether that answers your question. Yeah, the Sharia, um, they're called the Had in Sharia law, H-A-D-D. And literally, Had means the limits or the, uh, the boundaries, the extreme. Um, and in English, I think we translate that as penal law. Uh, but I want to say here that we must make a very important distinction between um, Islamic personal law and Islamic penal or criminal law. In most places in the Muslim world, Muslims apply Islamic personal law to marriage, divorce, property, inheritance, education, uh, almsgiving, um, zakat, battle mal, the creation of a community chest to look after the indigent in society, benevolent societies, for example, burial funds, um, and Sharia has been applied in that domain overwhelmingly in the Muslim world. The penal law, amputation of arms, stoning to death, 
that's only a minority tradition uh, within Islam. Uh, and that's why I say that for these Sharia penal law people, they want the Islamization of the state. And they are being challenged by others who say, no, uh, you don't have to go that far to be Muslim. And for those people, for those moderates, um, they, they want some level of separation between church and state, but they don't want that to mean that religion has no role to play in public life. So the big issue, the big debate is, how can you remove religion from state jurisdiction without paying the penalty of privatizing it? That's, that's the big debate. And here I think we would agree, <laughs> you and I would agree, that excessive privatization of religion leads to the, to the demise of religion. Religion is not really worthy uh, of anything if it has nothing to say in the public, in public life. And how won't he learn something with President Clinton? I'm on tape, but... Yeah, the, the phrase is from the Quran, I believe from Surah Al-Imran, I'm not sure, chapter 3 of the Quran, Amal bima'ruf wa nahiyan al-munkar, to command the good and to prohibit, uh, to counsel against the evil. And suddenly Ibn Taymiyyah and the other medieval scholars say this is the grounds for theocracy, that Religion without authority is meaningless. Uh, how terrible it would be for God to command us to do what is right, to do what is wholesome, but to deny us the instruments we need to put that into practice. See, that's what the radicals are saying. The moderates are saying that to command what is good and to forbid what is evil is an appeal to a culture of persuasion. <laughs> For example, in the um, Hausa Islamic reform of the 19th century, the leader said that what was necessary, using exactly that verse, what was necessary for reform in the Muslim community, they use the word, not jihad, but tajdeed, which is very interesting. Tajdeed is a process of reform and renovation, whereas jihad is a program of revolutionary change. They said what was necessary for tajdeed, for reform, was for scholars in the community to go out into the villages and to teach the people so that they know the distinction between right and wrong. Now, I'm very interested, maybe I'm reading myself into this, I'm very interested in this debate that they never said, this will ensure that people will become morally righteous. No, they only said, this will help people to know the distinction, the difference between right and wrong, between good and bad. Okay, I want to bring this home. In the United States, in our penal system, in our criminal justice system, we say that a prisoner is not worthy to stand trial 
if he or she does not know the distinction between right and wrong, good and bad. And we say this in our justice system. We don't say that they should be morally righteous <laughs> before they can stand trial. Now, this is, for me, this is again um, invoking the sort of moral nature of the human being. The human being is a moral agent. The reason why the state punishes us is because, potentially, we are capable of remorse and repentance. So the penitentiary, where we go, is supposed to be the place where we learn penitence. It doesn't happen nowadays, you know. But, but that we can be corrected, we can be reformed. Uh, the great prison reforms of the 19th century, um, and the Quakers in England, was based on this idea of the potential character of human beings to be reformed, to be renewed, and to be revitalized in the image of God. Uh, now, it seems to me that this commanding the good and forbidding the evil can be made to fit into that. That's why I say it's so critical, it's so important for us to have this conversation with Muslims. You know, it's so important because in general, the image of America in the Muslim world is that we are a secular Leviathan. We don't care for religion. Americans are not only don't care for religion, they are against religion. Uh, and I say to my Muslim friends, no, Americans are not against Islam, are not against religion, we are misguided. We think we can live very well of the moral capital of our forebears without caring to hoots about the roots of the heritage. That's what we think. We are misguided. So help us <laughs> to get out of these jams.